Hello, this is Richard Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today I'm talking about freedom and the pursuit of happiness. I hope you enjoy it. The topic that I want to address this morning is fascinating. And I believe that it will be of real benefit to you. And some of it's just kind of, you would think, is almost common sense. Unfortunately, <clears throat> modern people don't seem to use common sense. But where I want to start with is with some words that I know you're all familiar with. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The opening words of the, of the Declaration of Independence. You know, we, this, of course, that was 1776. And, you know, from those words, we as a nation seem to have this foundational belief that there truly is a connection between liberty or freedom and the pursuit of happiness and finding happiness. That's why I've titled this talk, Freedom and the Pursuit of Happiness. Now what's interesting, if you fast forward 13 years from the signing of the Declaration, 1789, George Washington gave his first inaugural address. And in that inaugural address, he added a little something to that thought. He said, there exists in human nature an indissoluble union between freedom, virtue, and happiness. He threw in that word virtue. Because here 13 years later, Washington realized that in order to have a free society, there has to be a character to the people. There has to be an ability to, to basically self-restraint. He says this is necessary for any culture to flourish. But you know, we seem to have lost this understanding of what it really means to be free. And I think this loss of understanding, some would say goes back to the 1960s, but others would say that it goes back to the 1920s. You see, what's happened is that we have tried to apply the concept of freedom to every arena of life. And therefore, I believe we have developed a perverted understanding of what it means to truly be free. Back in the 1980s, Time Magazine was celebrating 60 years as a publication. And so they had this special edition that was called Those Amazing 60 Years. And the main essay of this special edition was titled, What Really Mattered? What Really Mattered During the Past 60 Years? They said, you have to understand the idea or the spirit that characterized that age. And the answer was one word, freedom. 
freedom. It didn't speak of freedom as a patriotic ideal, but of freedom in an absolute sense. Let me read to you a couple of sentences from the article. The fundamental idea that America represented corresponded to the values of the times. America was not merely just free, it was freed and unshackled. The image was of something previously held in check, an explosive force of a country that moved about in random particles of energy, yet at the same time gained power and prospered. To be free was to be modern. To be modern was to take chances. The American century was to be the century of unleashing, of breaking away, at first from the 19th century, and eventually from any constraints at all. At the end of the essay it says, behind most of the events of the last 60 years laid this assumption, almost a moral imperative, that what was not free ought to be free, that limits and boundaries were intrinsically evil. Can you believe that? You see, more and more Americans have come to believe that freedom merely means the absence of restraints in your life. It's the freedom to live outwardly based on what I desire inwardly. You see, in the process, modern people have developed a worldview that believes if I'm going to be truly happy, I have to be morally and spiritually free. And this approach to life is driven by this entitlement mentality that I want to be left alone. I want to be free from the demands and expectations of others so that I can fashion a life that is pleasing to me. Because in the end, life is all about me, isn't it? So you can see how there is in people's minds this indissoluble union between total freedom and happiness. But guys, I'm here this morning to tell you that it's not working. People's lives are breaking down. You see this really even in the millennial generation. Most people don't know, suicide is at an all-time high in our land. Depression is at an all-time high. Our generations are like 10 times, struggling 10 times more with depression than a previous generation, going back 50 years. A Dr. Daniel Amon and a Dr. Lisa Roth wrote a book, and in it they said anxiety and depression are major public health problems reaching epidemic levels in the United States. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you read my blog back in April, but in it I reported from an article written in the Harvard student newspaper, The Crimson. Harvard has 6,700 undergraduates. And this article was about depression. And that 47% of the student body found themselves during the course of the year at one point depressed to the point of having a hard time functioning. I mean, these are supposedly our best and brightest. I don't know how many of you saw in the Wall Street Journal on Tuesday an article on depression. This was interesting. It says, women 
suffer from depression more than men. And then it said, but we're not really sure about that because we're not sure how many men suffer from depression because most men won't come forward and admit it. And the reason is because men think we're not supposed to get depressed. We're not supposed to get down. Real men, this doesn't happen to. And so many men, therefore, suffer silently. As Thoreau said, we experience and live lives of quiet desperation silently. You see, our social scientists, and the research is there, guys. The social scientists will tell you, we're not a very happy culture. But nobody wants to admit it. And the reason is, I'm convinced, is the modern approach to happiness just isn't working. Because the modern view of freedom breaks down, and it breaks down for three reasons that I'm going to share with you real briefly. And what you're going to see, a lot of this is just kind of common sense. The first reason the modern approach to freedom breaks down has to do with our desires and the complexity of the human heart. Tim Keller says, or asked, have you ever noticed the competing desires in your heart and how our desires can be so contradictory? Let me give you an example. Take a young man. He's going off to college. You remember that day? You remember how exhilarating it was? How free you felt? And that young man wants to make really good grades because he wants to go to a really good law school because he wants to be a lawyer. And so studying and his grades are important. He's also kind of athletic, real healthy, and you know, wants to keep in shape, take care of his body. <clears throat> the problem is, on the other hand, he's real social. And in college he finds, you know, there's a lot going on socially. He likes to party. He likes to drink. He likes to drink a lot. He likes to stay out late. Do you see what he's faced with? Do you see the competing desires of the heart? You see, this is a real problem. Our wants are endless and they often just collide. And wisdom, and I talk about this in this new book, wisdom seeks to discern which of my desires are liberating and which of my desires are destructive. We have to discover and discern which of my desires are aligned with who I really am and what I really want for my life, but also recognizing those desires which will prevent me from reaching my life goals. Philip Yancey gives a great example of this with his older brother. <clears throat> his older brother, he says, was one of the most gifted musicians he had ever encountered. Apparently he played the piano beautifully and dreamed of being on concert stages all over the world. But Yancey says, the problem is, we had a pretty strict upbringing in South Georgia. And he said, as my brother got older, he began to rebel. And he says, in an attempt to break the shackles of, of a confining upbringing, my brother went on a grand quest for freedom. He tried on worldviews like changes of clothing, Pentecostalism, atheistic existentialism, Buddhism. He joined the flower children of the 1960s, growing his hair long and wearing granny glasses, living communally, 
experimenting with sex and drugs. And for a period of time, he would send me these exuberant reports of how great his life was. But eventually, I began to notice that a darker side began to creep in. I had to bail him out of jail when, he, when an LSD trip went bad. He broke relations with every other person in the family and burned through several marriages. And then I began to get late night suicide calls. He said, watching my brother, I learned that apparent freedom can actually mask deep bondage. A cry from the heart of unmet needs. The most musically gifted person I have ever known ended up just tuning pianos and not playing them on a concert stage. Guys, sometimes you have to deliberately give up your freedom to, get, to engage in certain things which will enable you to release yourself to a richer and better type of freedom. As we look at the competing desires of the heart, it's critical for us to discover which of our desires are truly liberating and which ones are destructive. This is wisdom. Now, a second reason the modern view of freedom breaks down comes from Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits. Covey says that every single one of us, every one of us in this room, has what he calls a hierarchy of priorities, a hierarchy of wants in your life. We all have that ultimate want, the ultimate desire. Covey calls it our personal center. You may not be aware of it, but you do have a personal center. He says deep down, it's what you ultimately live for. And he says, I quote, whatever is at the center of your life will be the source of your security. It'll be the guidance and wisdom and power in your life. He makes it clear that every aspect of your life is determined by your personal center. Another way to understand this is to realize that everybody lives for something. There is something out there in life that gives us a sense of significance and security. It's what makes us feel valuable and that our lives are worth something. Without this main thing, there's no way that I could be happy. We're convinced that if I don't have what, what's at my prayer, if I don't get this or have this, there's no way I can be happy. And then he gives all kinds of examples. Like, for instance, if you're a workaholic, generally it's because either money or status is at your personal center. And you know what he's ultimately telling us, guys? He's saying, when he gets right down to it, Nobody's free. Nobody's free. We all are controlled by our personal center. And the problem is, our personal center can easily lead us down a path of disappointment and destruction. And not the, the path to happiness that we think it's leading us. You know, a third and final reason the modern view of freedom breaks down is that people just don't understand how life really works. People don't really understand that there is a pattern or fabric to all reality. That life is governed by certain principles and laws. And that you violate these at your own peril. 
Now, one of my blogs recently, I shared this story. It's kind of funny. But it brings out this idea that there is a pattern or fabric to reality, and wisdom recognizes that you seek to live in harmony with it. It was back in the late 1960s, there was a group of hippies living in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. They were seeking to be free. And so part of the deal was they decided that hygiene was a middle-class hang-up that they could do without. Imagine. So they decided to live without it. For example, they said baths and showers, while not actually banned, were frowned upon. The essayist and novelist Tom Wolfe was intrigued by this group. He said, they sought nothing less than to sweep aside all codes and restrictions of the past and start out from zero with the goal of being completely free. He said they desired to be totally autonomous. But before long, he says, these hippies' aversion to modern hygiene had consequences that, they, that were as unpleasant as they were unforeseen. At the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, there were doctors who were treating diseases that no living doctor had ever encountered before. Diseases that had disappeared so long ago, they had never even picked up Latin names, such as the mange, the grunge, the scroff, and the rot. The itching and the manginess began to vex these hippies, leading them to seek help from the local free clinic. And step by step, they had to rediscover for themselves the necessity of modern hygiene. I mean, guys, clearly, you can't just live however you want with no restrictions. There is a fabric or pattern to all reality, and you have to honor it or pay a price. So a really good question to consider then at this point is, so what does it mean to be free? I mean, this is such a valuable concept in our country, in our land, the land of the free. You know, I think the greatest insight provided in this subject is by the great Oxford philosopher Isaiah Berlin. And Berlin says there's two types of freedom. There's negative freedom, and there's positive freedom. Most people today, he says, see it only in negative terms. Freedom from. Freedom from restraints. Freedom from restrictions. Freedom from boundaries. Because most people believe restrictions and restraints keep us from fulfilling our heart's desires. But there's a positive freedom. And most people don't understand this. It's not freedom from, it's freedom for. For instance, it's freedom for excellence. It's the idea of being all that you were ever meant to be. I mean, think about it. positive freedom for a musician. For a dancer, for a scholar, for an athlete, involves self-control, involves training, involves discipline. Winston Churchill, who I just, I, I just find to be an intriguing person, great sense of humor, he loved to quote Alexander the Great to make a, a point. 
He said, Alexander the Great loved to mock the Persian people. He says, the Persian people will always be slaves to somebody because they can never say no. He was saying, true freedom thrives on self-restraint and the power to say no. And Churchill said, he used this to make this point, that a culture that cannot curb its desires is a culture with no future. And you know, that's true also in a person's life. To be truly free requires a clear refusal of what is false, of what is bad, of what is excessive, and what is destructive. And yet modern people, particularly younger people, don't seem to get this. Instead of thinking, how can I live wisely? Their first thought is, how can I be happy? And they believe happiness comes from having the freedom to pursue whatever their heart desires. And this is why today so many Americans seem to believe that no one should ever surrender their moral and spiritual authority to anyone particularly God, especially God. So many people have come to think that if you surrender your life to Him and, and obey Him, He will abuse you. And you know how I know that this is true? Because I once believed that. That Jesus was here to steal my happiness from me because He would steal my freedom but you know, you have to ask yourself this question. Why would God want to do that? Why would he want to steal your happiness from you? Have you ever thought maybe God has designed the ultimate path to happiness and we just don't like the path? You know, I think so many of us believe that all God wants to do is cross my will and deprive me of my freedom and make me miserable. Seriously, that is a number of people's worldview. And what we don't realize is sometimes you need your will to be crossed. You need your will to be crossed for the ultimate good and happiness of your life. And let me give you a great example of this. Let's assume it's late December. The holidays are over. You're approaching a new year. You wake up one morning. You've enjoyed all the holidays, all the festivities. You get up one morning and you look in the full-length mirror at your body. And you don't like what you see. And you just realize you've gotten out of shape, you've gotten overweight, you just don't like what you see. And so you decide, I'm going to change this. And on Monday morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to start a new routine. And so Monday morning, your alarm goes off at 5.30. And it's dark outside. It's cold outside. And your bed feels so good. It feels so right to stay in bed. What do you do? You cross your will, and you get your rear end up, and you go to the gym, and you work out. And once you do it, you're glad you did it. That night, you go to a restaurant, you and your wife's favorite restaurant. And there's your favorite dish. The only problem is a lot of fat, a lot of carbs. And you realize this is not 
this is not good. And so you, what do you do? You cross your will. You order something on the menu that doesn't taste as good, but better for you. And you stick with that for a while. And you begin to see little, a little progress. And you get encouraged. And then you decide, I'm going to bring, I'm going to get a trainer to help me and work with me. Think about what you're doing. You're bringing an authority figure in your life, someone to have authority over you. And they push you. And it's hard. But you stick with it. There are times you want to quit, but you cross your will to keep going. And a month and six weeks go by, and all of a sudden you begin to really feel better. And your clothes fit perfectly. And you look better. And you get all these great comments. Because you're healthy. And you feel good about yourself. There's even kind of a sense of, of you can use the word happiness about it. You see, this is what Isaiah Berlin means when he describes positive freedom. It's paradoxical. You see, guys, it's knowing the right restrictions. It's saying no to yourself. It's setting boundaries. Positive freedom is particularly at work in the moral and spiritual realm. You see, we were made to operate a certain way. And this is what people don't get. God designed us, and he knows, listen to this, what we need in this life. And that's why God's word is kind of like, it's prescriptive. It prescribes what we need to live full and vibrant and healthy lives. You know, when you go to a mechanic, he tells you what your car needs. He's not making an arbitrary suggestion, is he? He's saying, you should do this, because if you don't, your car is going to break down. And the reason is because the mechanic knows the car is how it's designed and how it functions best. And therefore, I hope this makes sense, that a life full of foolish, unwise choices is not freedom. And Os Guinness says it best. Please listen to this. This is, this is very powerful. Os Guinness says, Freedom is not to be able to make whatever choice your heart desires. It is making the right choice, the good choice, the wise choice. Amen. And then he says this. This is powerful, guys. Very profound. He says, when everything is permissible, no one is truly free. So it is ironic, but not accidental, that millions of American people that who live here in this country, the land of the free, are in recovery groups from one addiction to another. The land of the free in recovery groups. So what is true freedom? How can we be free? Tim Keller has an interesting observation. He says, modern people are so unhappy because we find ourselves continually enslaved and in bondage. And the reason is because we're following our desires and emotions wherever they lead us. And instead of wanting and conforming our lives to what we need, 
And then he says, the modern view of freedom fails us by its very nature because real freedom has to be compatible with our greatest need as human beings. And what is our greatest need as human beings? He says, to love and to be loved. To love and to serve someone else. To love and serve someone else with your life. And this is where the problem comes in, guys. Because when you enter a love relationship, what happens? You lose your autonomy. It means you, it means you have an obligation to be accountable to this person you love. But you know, you choose it. Why do you choose it? Because it's the way you were designed to live, and you know it, you sense it. In one sense, you give up your freedom in order to love. And this is what positive freedom is all about. This is positive freedom as described by Isaiah Berlin, because when you do, when you feel most alive, when you love. Remember what it meant to fall in love with your spouse. And just the love that you experience as the years go by. Even though they're, I know you go through tough times. Think of the love of when one of your children comes into the world. It changes everything. But the problem is, the deeper your love grows for somebody, the less you have control over your life. This reminds me, some of you older folks will remember this. This reminds me, and this is, this is really profound. There was a famous song written by Glenn Fry and Don Henley of the Eagles. It's called Desperado. Any of you remember that song, Desperado? It's about a cowboy who refuses to love and let anybody love him. And the lyrics are a picture of a man who just says, I do not want to give up my freedom. Kind of like, remember that old Marlboro man? Always alone. Listen to these lyrics. Desperado. Oh, you ain't getting no younger. But your pain and your hunger, they're driving you home. And freedom? Oh yeah, freedom. That's just some people talking. Your prison is walking through this world all alone. And the song ends with these words, you better let somebody love you before it's too late. You know, guys, if we're going to find a life that leads to our ultimate joy and well-being, we have to submit to the structure that fits who we are. We must find the structure that fits our design because true freedom is doing what God built us to do. And God built us for love relationships. But the ultimate, most important relationship he built us for is a relationship with himself. Do you realize that's why you're here? That's why he put you here? In the book of Isaiah, he talks about these are the people who I formed for myself. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, we have been made by him and for him. And then 2 Corinthians 8, 6, it says, we exist for him. Any of you who are parents, why do you bring children into the world? 
You know ultimately why you do it? You anticipate a lifelong relationship with them, a relationship that brings you great joy. Why did God put us here? He anticipated a relationship, a lifelong, not only lifelong, an eternal relationship with us as people. The problem is there's the built-in risk, and parents experience this well, is that the children will reject it. Please hear this, guys. God made us to live our life in a love relationship with Him. And if we miss this, we will have missed the very reason for our earthly existence. And that's significant. Augustine put it this way, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts will never find rest until they rest in thee. So I ask you with this I'd ask you this morning to confront this possibility that maybe our ideas about freedom and happiness are wrong. That freedom with no restrictions and no restraints is not freedom at all. Over time, it'll lead you just to disappointment and maybe even you'll crash and burn. True positive freedom is to find the right restrictions, the restrictions that fit your being and leads to harmony and peace and joy in your life. Now, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up with a great illustration. But before I do, um, I want to go back and, and, and take one second to commit to consider Stephen Covey's word. Your personal center. What is it you're really living for? He says, whatever is your personal center is your source of security. It's your source of significance in life. And what leads to your ultimate priorities in life. And the question is this. What is it in your life? What's your personal center? Whether you realize it or not, something is there at the center of your life. And it's important that you be able to identify it. Now I'm going to leave you with, I need another about five minutes to talk about a man. I want to give you a picture of someone who was totally free, the Apostle Paul. You know, what's so incredible, as free as he was, he spent a lot of his, his later years in prison. First, what you see, Paul on several occasions talks about the desires of the body. And he says, you know, there's much, so much in this life that is lawful, is permissible for me to do, but then he says, but I'm not going to be mastered by any of my desires. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. Great question, guys. Am I a slave to the desires of my body? Or are they a slave to me? You see, the statistics are very real. Seven out of ten men and by the way, when we say slaves, we're talking about addiction. and That's more of a modern term. Seven out of ten men are addicted to either drugs, tobacco, alcohol, or pornography. 
and some are addicted to more than one. You know, if we're in any way a slave to the desires of our body, we're not free. We're in bondage. Secondly, Paul talks about in Philippians 4, he says, you know, I can live my life with humble means, or I can live in prosperity. I can have an abundance. He's not saying having abundance, having money is, is, is bad. He just says, I can take it or leave it. He says, I've learned to be content whatever my circumstances are. And what you find from the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm not a slave to money and wealth. And this, I believe, is a major issue in so many of our lives. And this is the real problem with it. We're not aware of it. This is one of the flaws in our lives that we just don't really see. We think, you know, I've got real control of this area of my life. And Tim Keller says this is a reality. I mean, he's got like 20-something thousand members. Most are professional people in Manhattan. And he says, you know, I've been there all these years, and people come and share with me their problems, all professional people. He says, do you know in the 20-something years I've been there, I've never had one person come and say, Dr. Keller, I struggle with the love of money. In fact, he says he did a series, a seven-week series, kind of like in a place like this. And he says, and it was on the seven deadly sins. And he says, we packed it out until I got to the section on greed, and he says, nobody showed up. And he said, nobody showed up because they felt like, you know, this is not a problem for me. But it is. In fact, Psychology Today had, a, 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 uh, had an article on an extensive study on the influence of money in our lives, and the, one of the startling conclusions they came to were those, those who are most preoccupied with money not necessarily, not necessarily those who have the most, but those who are most preoccupied with money are the least likely to be involved with satisfying love relationships. And Steve Singletary will tell you that the number one issue that causes conflict in marriage is usually having something to do with money and finance. So Paul wasn't a slave to the desires of his body or to money and material possessions. And thirdly, Paul, this is a biggie, guys, Paul was not a slave to the approval of man. He wasn't consumed by the question, what do people think about me? One of the classic books written was Robert McGee's book, The Search for Significance, and he says, if you want to get a good glimpse into your own soul, honestly answer these three questions. One, how much different would my life be if it were not for the fear of failure? How different would your life be? Number two, how much different would my life be if it were not for the fear and worry about what other people think about me as a man? And then finally, how much of my life and money have I wasted trying to gain the approval of others, trying to impress the world? How much of your time and resources have you wasted on that? I believe that uh, our longing to impress the world and win man's approval is one of the deadliest addictions in life. And Paul says in Galatians 1.10, Am I seeking the favor of men? Or am I seeking the favor of God? 
I'm still trying to please men. I cannot be a bondservant of Christ. Paul was not a slave to the desires of his body. Paul was not a slave to money and material wealth. Paul was not a, not a slave to the approval of man, to the prestige that so many people yearn for. And then finally, this is probably the biggest. Paul was not a slave to the fear of death and dying. In Philippians 1, he says, For me to live is to live for Christ, but for me to die is to gain. To die is to go be at home with my heavenly Father. Blaise Pascal, and I'm going to wrap this up with this, this thought. He said, very few people will admit this. And Pascal is considered one of the most brilliant people to ever live. Became a Christian later in life. But he said, his, from his observation, unhappiness is perhaps the most obvious feature of human existence. And he says, the reason we're so unhappy is because of our mortality. That deep down we know this is all going to end. He says, it's the most obvious fact of life. And he says, the problem is, we go along living our lives, and it slaps us in the face when we least expect it, because we realize our own helplessness in overcoming it. And he says this, I quote, deep down, we are haunted by the fact that when we die, we will experience the loss of everything in this life. And he says, this is why we love pleasure and diversion so much, to keep us from thinking about the fact that one day we're going to die. I don't know if Pascal is right, but I want to ask you this question. How different would your life be today if you were completely delivered from the fear of death? Completely delivered. More so, what if not only you were delivered, but you saw it as something that you really looked forward to? I contend it would change everything in the way you live today. And this is the good news. In Hebrews 2.15 we're told this is one of the reasons Jesus came into the world. To deliver, to deliver us from the fear of death which we would otherwise be slaves all of our lives. He came to deliver us from that. And so guys... Paul had found true freedom. And the reason is this. Because Jesus was now his personal sinner. He had surrendered to the one who had designed him, and now he was living in harmony with that design. Another way to see this is that Paul had given up his freedom to serve a king. And the Bible describes him in Revelation 19 as the king of all kings. But this is what people don't recognize. He is a loving king. He is a wise king. He is a benevolent king. And he loves you. And he is committed to your well-being. And so this is the situation we find ourselves in. If you don't choose him to be your king, you're going to choose some other king to serve. And it's not a matter of freedom. It's a matter of who or what is going to be Lord of your life. And this is what's so crucial to grasp, and I'll leave you with it. 
Jesus is the only legitimate king in life. And this is the great irony. He is a king that truly liberates those who choose to serve him. I'm going to close with a prayer. Father, we are humbled by the fact that you're so patient with us. But we're also thankful that you are, the, you are truly the key to finding life, that abundant life that Jesus speaks of. And now as we leave this morning, I pray that we would give great and deep thought to what is the personal center in my life? Am I truly free? Am I finding the happiness that the world offers? I pray that we would realize that we were designed to live in relationship with you now and throughout all eternity. And that if we miss this, we miss the very reason for our existence. We thank you, Lord, for our lives. We thank you for the gift of friendship. Thank you for all our, our families, our work that you've called us to do. I pray that you would bless each man here as we leave this day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, Founding Director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.